Well, if you haven't already, let me invite you to take a hold of your Bible. Open with me to the passage our friend Megan just read. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Today we're looking at five verses in Colossians where Paul is explaining his heart for, for the people, for the church. He's describing what he wants for, for the Colossians, the goal of what he wants, the aim of what he wants. Colossians has been written by the Apostle Paul to fortify their belief in Christ. They have, been, they have encountered some false teaching, some false teachers, that, that, and this teaching is including strict kind of adherence to uh, food regulations and rules. It's, there's, uh, you have to hold to certain religious festivals. There's also possibly some claims of, you know, Christ isn't enough. You have to know deeper spiritual mysteries, and, and we just so happen to have them, and we can share them with you from these false teachers. They're claiming superior wisdom or knowledge. And so far, up to this point in the letter, Paul has claimed that Christ is all. <laughs> Christ is preeminent. Christ is supreme. You have Christ, you have everything you need, and he's over all human philosophies. He's over all religions. He's over all human traditions. This is what Paul has written so far, that Christ is above all things. He's before all things. All things were made by Christ. All things were made for Christ. All things have been made through Jesus. And, and Paul is teaching that to have a worldview, to have a belief system or perspective where Jesus is not central, where Jesus is not functional, it's to have a worldview, it's to have a belief system that is not, that's not in line with reality itself. Christ is all in all. He's, he is the ultimate reality, the central focus. To, so our worldviews and our perspectives and our beliefs are to be in line with this reality, that Christ is above all. And Paul believes that he's been entrusted with this gospel. He's, he's so committed to this gospel, to the advance of this gospel, to the spreading of this gospel, that he's rejoicing in his sufferings, that it's happening that the gospel is, is being spread and shared. It, he talks about, I'm rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. He talked about the fact that, that, that this gospel, he's been entrusted to as a minister, as a, as a servant. So he's rejoicing. This thing's going out. This thing is, is bearing fruit in your life. I'm rejoicing in that, even if that means I am personally suffering. And he concludes there by saying, don't shift from the hope of the gospel to which you've heard the gospel that I've been entrusted with, this gospel that I have given my life for. He's given his life for, as he says, to, to warn, to teach everyone in all wisdom that everyone might be presented in Christ as mature. That's his, that's his hope. That's why he teaches. That's why he, he warns. He's not, Paul is not some sort of televangelist that gives a easy to believe, tickle your ears message and says, if you want blessing, send money to this number. Paul is suffering at great cost to himself and not even a benefit to himself is this gospel message going forth. And he wants people not just to be converted, but to be mature in Christ. This is why he is, he is warning and teaching. It's not about fame or wealth or power. It's about others being mature in Christ, right? Because this is a guy, Paul, who is in prison. He hasn't even met these people face to face and yet he is writing to them. He's praying for them. He's struggling on their behalf. He's struggling over them, and he wants them to not be shifted from the hope of the gospel, not move on from this gospel reality. And we see here the heart of Paul. This is the heart of a, a missionary, the heart of a pastor, the heart of a leader is 
giving up your life that you might be used as an instrument of God's grace in building up the faith of others. Amen. So chapter two, verse one, that's kind of where we've come so far. And we're looking now at chapter two, verse one. Paul says this, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face. So Laodicea was a neighboring city to Colossae. It was about nine miles away. And these two cities had a relationship. They're sometimes mentioned together in the New Testament. And Paul wants them to know how great a struggle he has for them. The word there can mean agonize, a great conflict, a contest. It could also be translated as fight. And, and the context that this word is often used in is against opponents of gospel or Christ-centered teaching. To contend, he's struggling against the doctrinal opponents to true orthodoxy. And Paul, I think, is writing this, letting them know, hey, you might have some teachers there in your midst who are saying, man, this guy, Paul, you're holding to his teaching. You guys haven't even met him. You haven't even seen him face to face, some of you. And Paul is saying, I don't want this to be an argument that that might bring up. Even though I haven't seen you face to face, I have a great struggle for you. I have a great uh, heart for you. I, I love you. I'm writing this. I'm agonizing over you. And what might you expect Paul to say next? I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, that what? Why, why is he writing this letter? Why is he expressing his heart? What is the purpose of this letter? What does he say? That uh, I want you to know how much I've been struggling for you, that you may destroy your opponents with logic and rhetoric. <laughs> he doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say that you might fight them and show them how dumb they really are. He says, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. Isn't that interesting? In the midst of their circumstances, in the midst of possible bombardment from false teachers and teaching, Paul is praying for the hearts of the Colossians, that their hearts might be encouraged. To be encouraged is to call to one side, to exhort, to implore, to console, to be encouraged at the state of comfort. He wants them to be comforted, consoled from this false teaching and distress and he says, being knit together in love from the heart. Hearts are encouraged. The kind of very motivational center of a person, the, the inner self. He wants them to be knit together in love. One, one Bible scholar said this, as they are increasingly confident of being on the pathway to becoming complete in Christ, are mature in Christ. Paul warns and wants their love for one another to grow. In addition, their knowledge that Paul is struggling on their behalf is encouraging in the midst of whatever struggles they are undergoing, knowing that they are not alone in their suffering. That's why Paul is sharing this heart with them. He wants them to, to continue and to be encouraged in their love for one another. He wants that to grow. He wants them to know that he's struggling for them. He wants them to know that he loves them, and he wants them to be knit together. Now, I don't do much knitting. I've never knit I don't quite get how it works, but being knit together, right? You take, you take thread and you weave thread together in interlocking loops, right, Sydney? Sydney, you knit? No? You weave, which is different than knitting. But when you knit, it can be similar to weaving though, right? You're taking fabric and, and threads and you're uniting them through interlocking loops. You're, you're putting them together. You're causing them to be 
together in such a way that they wouldn't have been if you had not put them together, right? For warmth, for comfort, for unity. And this is, this is the image, this is the language that Paul is using here, which I love. Knit together in, in, in love, bringing together. This is a sign of growth and maturity. I was reading this week, there was a story of a man who passed by a bookstore and, and he saw a book with the title, How to Hug. And he was intrigued by that. He was taken back by the title and it was somewhat of a romantic nature, right? How to hug. <laughs> Anyone ever read a book on how to hug? Seems like it'd be pretty self-explanatory, but maybe this man needed some help. And to his chagrin, he discovered that this was actually the seventh volume in an encyclopedia covering the subjects from how to hug. <laughs> so it wasn't a book on how to hug. It was just an encyclopedia book. And, and the story goes, the illustration with this is it's not how to hug, but Everyone knows that a church is, is supposed to be the place where love is manifested. And many people come into the church hoping to find a demonstration of love only to discover an encyclopedia on theology. That was striking to me in how that was written. Of yes, theology, doctrine, we preach that, we proclaim that, we are rooted on that, we're centered in that. But if it's not manifested in the church in love, there's, there's a disconnect here. It was Augustine who was, who was writing and talking about how if our study and our theology and our doctrine of Christ and our study of the scriptures does not simultaneously increase both our love for God and our love for one another, we're reading the Bible wrong. <laughs> but this is what Augustine said. The sign of maturity is that believers and a sign of mature beliefs is in fact that you want to seek to grow together with those in the church. You want to be knit together in love, this, this kind of unity and, and fellowship. It was said that during World War II, as, as the enemy, uh, enemies were experimenting with what kind of punishment, what kind of torture is the best for getting prisoners to disclose information? Like, What's the best form of torture to get someone to talk? You know what they found? Does anyone know? Solitary confinement. They found if they put someone alone, solitary confinement, it was sometimes just a couple of days before they would, they'd be ready to spill the beans. Whatever, whatever you want to know, I'll tell you. Just get me out of this aloneness, this solitude. I think Paul wants the church to have their hearts knit together in love because in this place of solitude, in this place of isolation, we are susceptible. We can be easily tempted to believe the wrong things, to have false beliefs and distortions enter our mind. And Paul is saying that without unity, the church becomes more easily susceptible to false teachers and teachings, and they're tempted to move on from the gospel. Therefore, Paul is saying, kind of subversively for us, or counter to what we might think, you guys want to uh, combat false teachers? Knit yourself together in love. Isn't that cool? Paul wants their church and their Colossians to have their hearts knit together in love because without fellowship, without unity, the church becomes more easily tempted. And the church doesn't display the unity and the love that Jesus himself purchased and prayed for. So Jesus has this final prayer for his disciples as recorded in the Gospel according to John. And he's praying to the Father for he's like a couple big things, but one of the main ones is oneness. Unity. This is what Jesus prays in, in John chapter 17, verse 11. Uh, the, the verse will be there up on your screen. Jesus prays this, I am no longer in the world, 
but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. He's talking here to this father. Holy Father, keep them, the believers, in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So the church is to reflect the unity of the Trinity. This is what Jesus is praying for, that they would be one. He continues in verse 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, for, so his, his disciples, but for those who will believe in me through their word. So that includes all of us. We have all believed through the word of the disciples that might be passed down throughout the church history and generations. We have believed through the, the apostles as they've recorded the teaching in the life of Jesus that they may be all one, verse 21, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they also may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, and that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So what's the, what's the sign, what's the mark that the father loves the son? The love that the believers have for one another, the unity that they have for one another. See what Jesus is praying for here? This is why there's such strong words and, and warnings in the New Testament against gossip and slander and division. It's not only hurtful to the person that you're gossiping about, it's damaging to the very prayer and the accomplishment and the unity of the church. That's why it's so important. And this is why in my time in Des Moines, I've sought to bring churches together, bring church leaders together. This is why I'm so excited for Good Friday. We, this is a demonstration of our unity, our oneness. We might have differing beliefs on modes of baptism or uh, ecclesiology or uh, roles of, of church leaders within the church, but we can agree that Christ died for sinners and that through his death on the cross, we can be forgiven and adopted and find a new family. Amen is what Paul's praying for. Unity, he wants them to be encouraged, knit together in love, but this is not the end goal. We can't just close our Bibles here and say, wow, yeah, let's do that. There's, there's not the end goal here. It says in verse two, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, two, and order that, four, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in him, in, in whom are hidden all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge. So sometimes with Paul, it's, it's helpful to kind of break down what he's saying because <laughs> he uses a lot of run-on sentences, right? If Paul was writing in our English classes, the English teacher would just have a field day with a red marker. Run on, run on, run on, run on. But what Paul does is he explains, you know, this is what I'm writing for. And then he'll say, because of this, for, for this, for, and then in this, for, and you can kind of, you can almost see a map of what he's writing, but you see what he's doing here. He's saying, I want your hearts to be encouraged. So encouraged, your, your hearts are knit together in love to, to reach two things, understanding and knowledge of Christ. Well, what's in Christ? In Christ are all the riches of Christ is God's or mystery, right? And what's God's mystery in Christ? All the riches, all the wisdom, all the understanding is found in Christ. Do you guys see what he's doing there? I find that helpful as I'm studying to just print out, you know, make this one passage in one word sheet and then just start marking it up. This goes to this, this connects with this, and, and that helps me understand what is Paul really trying to say here? Because he has run-ons and sometimes I get confused by that. Paul wants the Colossians here to be built up in the knowledge of 
all the blessings, all the wealth, all the riches that are in Christ because the Colossians are connected to Christ. And he's essentially saying like, like uh, counterfeit inspectors of money, they don't study all the counterfeits out there. They study the original, study the original so well that if they, they meet a fake bill or a counterfeit bill, they can spot that because they know the original so well. Paul is saying, I want you guys to focus on Christ and to know Christ so well. In, in Christ is all the wisdom and all the mysteries and all the knowledge. So study Christ and don't focus with these false philosophies and traditions and, and teachers and teachings. He wants them to combat the false teaching and whatever teaching might, might come up later by growing in the knowledge of Jesus through his word. Right, we, we've, we've talked about, there's speculation that these false teachers were claiming that they had access to secret mysteries. They had access of, to wisdom that wasn't found in Christ. And Paul is saying, Christ is the ultimate storehouse. Christ is the deepest treasure chest of all wisdom and knowledge. You don't need to move on. You just need to go <laughs> deeper into Christ. So any Minecraft players in this room? I know Nick and Henry would love that. You can never go and hit the core. You can mine straight down and keep going. Not just diamonds that are down there, but riches of Christ. That's what Paul is saying here to reach all the riches of full understanding, full assurance of understanding, that they would attain to all the wealth that comes from a full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge, right? Wants them to be encouraged. It looks like being knit together in love so that they would reach the fullness of assurance of understanding and knowledge in Christ and in God's mystery and what's found in Christ, all the treasures and wisdom of knowledge. So the end goal in all of this, I think, is knowledge of Christ. It's what he wants the Colossians to do. He says this according to verse four. Now he said all this, he said, like I've said all this, so for what? So that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So I want you guys to grow in Christ. I want you to be encouraged so that no one may delude you. And the word there is not dilute. <laughs> That's how I understand it at first. I have a little bit of dyslexia sometimes. I heard dilute. Like you pull out the can of frozen concentrate of OJ, you dilute it with water. And you don't like it when you dilute too much because then it just doesn't taste as good. And that was flavor. Paul's not saying dilute. <laughs> like we can be diluted. He's saying delude. Anyone know what delude means? An older word. Impose a misleading belief. Deceive our fool. Like how the, the old King James says, beguile. It's a cool word. You don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to be misled. I don't want you to be fooled with plausible arguments, with arguments that sound good, with arguments that are well-crafted. They're fine-sounding. They're persuasive. They're enticing. It's smooth rhetoric. In other words, you hear these arguments and you think, hmm, I can see that. That is what Paul's warning the Colossians against. It's not like this, oh, there's this, I don't know, this crazy belief that's very contrary. It's, no, it's, it's, you could see that. It's plausible arguments. The argument seems reasonable. And I've seen more often than not, the most dangerous thing to the church is not these kind of outside beliefs coming in, but these teachers within the church that are slightly off. And the trajectory over time takes them to a place of not growing in Christ, not resting in his grace, not, not loving others. 
Because what the teachers are saying sounds reasonable. And maybe it's not kind of mystical shamans that are walking in these doors where we say, yeah, that guy's a little off. (laughs) We're not going to let him preach. (laughs) It might come more often than not through YouTube pastors and the beliefs that people are finding online that they are essentially welcoming into their mind through YouTube. Maybe not in this context. I just often wished and thought, instead of turning to YouTube, would you talk to me? Talk to a real person. <laughs> like talk with, the, talk with someone who actually knows the scriptures and knows you and it's not going to lead you, lead you astray. There's those who claim that they have these new deeper realities, new insights, and it doesn't lead to what Paul's praying here, being knit together in love with the church. It leads to isolation. It leads to self-righteousness. It leads to pride. It leads to judgment. Right? So if, if you're finding yourself, this may be a good test of true belief and teaching, if you're finding yourself growing more in pride and self-righteousness and condemnation, you're probably not hearing the gospel. <laughs> Because when I hear the gospel, I'm humbled. I'm motivated to love others and to love Christ. That's what Paul's praying. I say all this, know Christ. Be encouraged to follow Christ. Be encouraged to see that there's no wisdom. There's no, it's not worthy outside of Christ. There's this full riches that are found a full assurance of understanding Christ. And I say this, that no one may delude you. No one may deceive you with plausible arguments for Though I am absent from the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. And again, I think we see another bit of the heart of Paul here. Because even in the midst of these, this temptation or these false teachers, Paul is not describing, uh, you guys better do this or I'm just going to freak out. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm fretting and worry and anxiety here. No, he's, he's focusing on, I'm rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith. So in what he's seen so far, he's encouraging, continue in this. The good order and, and firmness of your faith is kind of image or, or thoughts, ideas from military. And the idea here is um, you see you in kind of a good military ranks and order. You're standing firm. You're not succumbing to uh, the attacks of, of the enemy. You're, re, you're standing firm in your resistance to this teaching. And I'm rejoicing that you are standing firm. And that's how the passage ends. And next week, I'm so excited because we get a therefore. <laughs> and he's going to launch into Alive in Christ. And he's going to talk about how he's defeated sin and death and the enemy. He's put him to public shame. Man, I'm pumped. I just want to kind of want to go into there right now. Therefore, as you have received Christ, walk in him. But we'll save that for next week. Got five verses today, Daniel. And we're looking at those five. <laughs> So I was studying this week, many Bible commentators and scholars uh, noted that Paul probably had in mind as he was writing this, this section of this letter of Colossians, Proverbs 2. Similar imagery and there's similar language that are used in these two spots. And when, I, when we look at Proverbs 2, we see some, some cool insight that Paul is giving us into the, the beauty of Christ, the centrality of Christ. So this is what Proverbs 2 says, verses 1 through 8. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight 
and raise your voice for understanding. And if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will find, excuse me, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. I see some of the similar imagery and language that's being used there. Storing up wisdom, knowledge and understanding, the knowledge of God, the Lord giving wisdom, calling out for insight, inclining your heart to understanding. What Paul is saying here is that the ultimate fulfillment of wisdom, the ultimate resource, the ultimate storehouse of wisdom is Christ. He is the repository, not repository, repository, the treasure chest, the storehouse of all of God's riches of wisdom and knowledge. That is incredible to me that Paul is applying this to Christ. What does that mean? You can, we can spend our whole lives plumbing the depths of the knowledge and wisdom of Christ and continually be amazed with the riches and the beauty that's found there. We don't ever have to move on from it. All sciences and philosophies and ideologies and Ideologies are nothing compared to Christ. The Colossians here that Paul is writing to, they, they did not need to look at any other philosophy. They didn't need to be misguided. And, and we don't need to look to any other philosophy. We don't need to look for any kind of wisdom outside of Christ. Biblical wisdom found its fulfillment in Christ. Right? Greek wisdom points to Christ. Our modern wisdom, how does life work best? It's Christ. Amen. We want to learn to be wise, to be understanding, to be knowledgeable. We learn and we dive into Christ. One pastor says it like this. If we are impressed with the scholarship of man and the achievements of scientific knowledge, then let us not play the fool by trumpeting a tiny chirp and ignoring the thunderclap of ominence. Jesus alone is worthy of our highest admiration Jesus alone is worthy of our trust. He can show us the Father. He can give us irresistible wisdom. He can see how to make all things work together for our good. None of his judgments about anything is ever mistaken. He teaches the way of God with infallible truthfulness. Trust him, admire him, follow him. Amen? As Paul shared his heart with the Colossians, I, I wanted to take a brief moment to share my heart with you that the, the forming of this church, the, the pastoring, the leading of this church is, is a struggle, and it is a beautiful struggle. It is a struggle that I have given my life for, this leading others and exploring the wisdom that's found in Christ. I, I'm seeking to explore deeper understanding as I pursue a degree in biblical counseling and, and learning wisdom of how does life work? How does the heart work in our relationship with our problems? And how can Christ and his grace apply itself to the problems that we experience and, and the problems in our hearts? That's what I want to give my life towards, this seeking wisdom in Christ 
of applying it to our heart, of helping others find this life and this joy and this hope in Christ. And I am young and have been a Christian, I don't know how long. I was 15, so not, I'm less than 20 years. And I have found that I will never plumb the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge and understanding that's found in his word. And keep coming back to it and keep drawing out of it. And I, I want to encourage you to get your hard hat on and your pickaxe and your shovel and dig and find riches and beauty and glory that is found in the treasure chest of Christ. It's nothing, there's, it's right here. In, in John Stott's preacher's notebook, he gives this illustration. Out of the mountains of Switzerland, the fir tree is a national symbol. And the hillsides are terraced with them, row upon row. The typical English tree is the oak, and its roots are said to go down as far as the tree grows up to support its massive, sturdy dimensions. But how do these pine trees, these tall, skinny pine trees, stand firm against wind and snow when their roots can't go any further? They're said to grow out and to interconnect with the pine tree's that are around them, the fibers intertwine with the roots of the other trees and they hold together. John Stott says, so stability depends on corporate fellowship and personal growth, personal depth. This is what Paul, I think, is, is, is getting at in our passage this morning. Grow in being knit together in love, but don't think that you can move on from Christ. Grow personally in depth, individually. This is how we are knit together and formed and shaped. This is what we seek to do each week as we hear the gospel, as we sing the gospel, as we see the gospel in communion, that we want to be shaped and formed by these realities. The more that we see our need for Christ, the more that we grow in our humility and recognize our need for Christ and our need for others, we do this, don't we? We don't seek unity. We don't seek to be knit together in love if we are self-sufficient. We don't seek to be knit together in love. We don't seek growth if we have felt like we've arrived. We feel like we have all the answers. I've heard it said that the church is a, a fellowship of beggars, receiving and offering love and support. Committed Christians are those who recognize that they are dependent upon God and they are interdependent with one another. They are always in the breadline. If not receiving, then giving. Isn't that a beautiful image? The church is a fellowship of beggars. The more that we see the kindness and the love of Christ, the more we see his grace towards us, the more our hearts are softened and warmed towards others. We see Jesus's love towards the church. Our love for the church grows. We see Jesus being gracious for us and we want to be gracious with others. We see Jesus forgive us and we want to forgive others. We see Jesus move towards us and pursue us and we want to move towards others and pursue them. And this is how we are knit together in love as we are shaped and formed by the gospel. And I pray, God, give us strength to be shaped by this gospel, amen? 
Give us strength for our minds to be reoriented to these realities and these truths for us to live out and to apply these gospel applications as, as we were reminded each week of these truths as we sing and as we see Jesus' body was broken on the cross for our behalf and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And he did so for the joy that was set before him. And he did so knowing that he was going to reconcile and redeem all his people to himself. And there was going to be this final feast and wedding supper of the lamb. And there was going to be this unity and worship and praise and fellowship and sweetness. And we pray, God, with that reality that is soon to be, be present right now in our midst today. Would your kingdom come? Would we live out of these realities of what you have accomplished and what you have called us to? And would he give us grace as we do this? We need grace to do this, don't we? We are so easily focused and shifted in our gaze to focus on our own wants and desires and our own little kingdoms that we try to set up. And God, would you, would you cause us to have our hearts transformed, to seek you, to know that wisdom and knowledge is found in you? There was an uh, American Quaker poet named John Greenleaf Whittier. He was an advocate of abolition of slavery in the United States. He, he lived about the 1800s. He wrote this little poem that I'd like to end with. He said, Oh, brother man, fold to thy heart thy brother. Where pity dwells, the love of God is there. To worship rightfully is to love each other. Each a psalm, each kindly deed a prayer. God give us grace not to do good to others, not to be knit together in love because we are required to, but because we want to. Amen. And may we not move our focus of wisdom, our seek for knowledge from anything but Christ and have his word shape us more and more as we grow. Let's pray. Lord, as, as the apostle Paul rejoiced to see the good order and firmness of the Colossians' faith in Christ. Although he was absent in body, yet present in spirit, I thank you, Father, that, that, that I get to see in, not only in spirit, but in person, the good order and firmness of faith in Christ by my brothers and sisters in this room right now. Lord, as we come together and, and Bibles are brought and Bibles are opened and songs are sung and we worship Jesus and we pray to Jesus and we want to be shaped by Jesus, this is an act of your grace, Father, in which you are at work in our midst and we praise you for what you've done in our lives. You are the one who deserves all the glory and the honor. You are the one who causes us to grow in wisdom and knowledge. We attribute who we are today who we are right now to your grace. This is the apostle Paul wrote, I am what I am by the grace of God. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any other, but it was not I, but Christ who is in me. Wait, me, wait, me, wait, <laughs> help me to speak clearly, Father. May we live out of this reality that we are what we are by the grace of God and help us not to treat your grace in vain, but help, it, help us to cause, to work, to live out of this grace to where we seek to encourage our brothers and sisters. We come to gatherings, we come to meetings, we come to the houses of those in our community and we 
we come with the posture of others, other-oriented. We want to encourage them. We want them to be rooted up and built up in Christ. We want them to grow in the gospel and to grow in grace. Would you use us, Father? We want to be your instruments. Would you be with, be with us this Friday as we remember and celebrate the significance of your death on the cross? Would you help us to unite with, with those in our community that share our faith to demonstrate the power of the gospel that can bring Republicans and Democrats together, that can bring all ethnicities and races together, that can bring former enemies together in love, that can unite those who are rich and poor, that can unite those who hold to all different former backgrounds or traditions. You can bring us together is as one in Christ. I don't think anything else can do that. So Jesus, would you help us to grow in this unity, to be knit together in love, that we might stand firm and be, and be in good order in our faith in Jesus Christ. We pray that you might do this for the, your, your namesake, that you might be glorified. In your son's name we pray. Amen.